0: And welcome to Bible Words. In this series, each week I take a single word which appears in the lectionary readings for that Sunday, and explore the use of that word throughout the Scriptures. I look at each word as it appears in the original language, so for New Testament words in Greek, for Old Testament words in Hebrew. I hope that by looking at a single word across the Scriptures in this way, it will help us all develop a greater sense of the unity of all Scripture. This week's Bible word is the Greek noun krima, which means judgment. This word appears in the Gospel of the Fourth Sunday of Lent, year A, that's John chapter 9 verses 1 to 41, when Jesus, having healed the man born blind, declares that it is for judgment that I have come into this world. The noun krima is one of a group of five other related Greek words all with meanings related to judgment. The verb krino is to judge, the noun krisis describes the activity or process of judging, and a krites is a judge. These four words together account for the vast majority of the 195 occurrences of these words in the New Testament. There are also 26 other words which, as is characteristic of Greek, are formed by adding various prefixes to krima or krino words. These collectively account for another 349 occurrences in the New Testament. In total, they widen the range of meanings, but most of them still relate in some way to assessments, often related to what is good and what is not. They cover such things as the quality of judgments or decisions, whether that's positive, such as sincerity or righteous judgment, or negative, such as prejudice, or the word which means hypocrite. They also include dialogue, such as the verb apokrinomai, which means to answer, or intellectual processes, such as distinguish, join together, classify, inquire, that's anacrino, which we'll come across later, or even doubt. Other compound words provide a sharper focus on particular legal aspects of judgment, so we have specific words for condemnation, catacrino, that's another word we'll see later, or investigation, or sentence. These Greek words give us various English words. Crime, criminal, crisis, criterion, critic, critical, and even discriminate and discern. This latter word is via the Latin kerno, which comes from the Greek verb krino. But it's very important to avoid those English words, crime and criminal, colouring our sense of the Greek verb krino, implying that judgment in the Bible is always about condemnation. Rather, We must remember that someone is only a criminal, guilty of a crime, once they have been judged to be so, by a proper process of assessment. So it's the process and the quality of judgment that we must consider as much as the outcome. Because the range of meanings is so wide, in this podcast I'll focus mostly on those main four words, CRIMA, CRINO, CRISIS and CRITES as a single group, since their meanings are closely related to the idea of judgment. However, as usual, I may sometimes look at other variants of the word for specific points. In the secular Greek literature of the ancient world, krino originally meant to separate. We see this sense in the Iliad book 5, which describes the goddess Demeter who separates the wheat from the chaff. Plato in the Republic book 2 uses the verb krino to mean assessing alternatives, and this dialectical sense continued into various other domains of activity, considering the victor in a contest for a prize, or even warriors contending with each other. It was therefore a natural extension to apply crino and krima to legal processes, including not only the process of making a judgment, but also accusation and sentence. Judgment was not solely a human affair. The gods made judgments, although their verdict could be unpredictable and at times capricious. Their worshippers could never know what their gods would do next, nor whether what they did to placate their deities would be pleasing to them or not. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which was produced between the 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ, all judgment ultimately belongs to God. Even when Moses appointed human judges to judge justly between a man and his brother in a dispute, Moses reassured the judges not to fear. But the judgment, the crisis, is God's. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Judgment belongs to the Lord, because he is both judge and ruler of Israel, and indeed judge and ruler of the whole world. For example, in Psalm 97, where the Lord reigns and makes Zion glad of his judgments, Psalm 97, verses 1 and 8. And indeed, the Hebrew verb shofat and the related noun Mishpat refer to both judging and governing. God's judgment is linked to his covenant with Israel, and the prophets report God as having a controversy, a crisis with his people, in which God pleads his own case when Israel has been unfaithful, for example, in Hosea chapter 4 verse 1 and Micah chapter 6 verse 2. And God's covenant faithfulness means that his judgment is often associated with his mercy, he delays punishment to allow time for repentance and to save the just, as when Abraham lobbies God, the one judging all the earth, as Abraham calls him, for the sake of even ten just men in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 to 32. God's judgment includes protecting the oppressed. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, he executes justice for the widow and orphan, and he also judges the poor with equity in Psalm 72, verse 2. Indeed, God is the very definition of justice, since all his ways are just in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, and no one taught him judgment in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14. However, ultimately God's judgment, however merciful, will result in a separation between those who follow him and those who rebel against him. In Ezekiel chapter 20 verses 36 to 38, God promises to enter into judgment with his people and purge from them those who transgress. And similar separations happen when Noah and his family are separated from the rest of humankind before the flood. That's in Genesis chapters 6 and 7. And also in the Exodus, where the Lord saves Israel but punishes Egypt. God's judgment is depicted as coming in stages in a kind of divine installment plan. Sufferings in the present are exhibited as God's interim judgments, which function as a merciful warning to renounce evil and submit to God. For example, in Amos 4, verses 6-13, which describes a series of misfortunes, hunger, drought, plagues and crop failure and war, with the recurring refrain, Yet you did not return to me and it all ends in the ominous climax. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. God's final sentence is sometimes portrayed as shocking and even violent, but it is no irrational outburst, nor should it be a surprise to those who have been warned. For in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 5 verses 8, 10, and 13, they shall know that I the Lord have spoken when I will execute judgments on you at Krimata. When men judge in the Hebrew Scriptures, their judgments should reflect God's justice. So judges were to judge according to the laws of God, as did Samuel in the first book of Samuel, chapter 7, verses 15 to 17, and also those appointed by Ezra in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 25. The judges of the book of Judges were more deliverers than arbitrators, only Deborah among them presided in a court in Judges chapter 4, verse 5, but the Lord's intention in appointing judges to save Israel from the power of its enemies was that they should listen to those judges he had appointed so that they would remain faithful to him. That's in Judges chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Later in the Hebrew Scriptures, kings also bear a responsibility for ruling with judgment, especially for the sake of the oppressed. And in doing so, they are to imitate God, who, remember, was both ruler and judge. Solomon asked God to endow the king with your judgment, Krimah, in Psalm 72, verses 1 and 2. And Solomon also became famous for his judgments, including the conflict of two women over an infant, when all Israel heard of the judgment, the Krimah, which the king had rendered, a Krimah. And that's in the first book of Kings, chapter 3, verse 28. Poignantly, Absalom desired to usurp the role of the true king, David, in providing judgment, chrisin, to anyone who had a suit for the king, that's a crisis. Absalom wanted himself to be judged, Crites, and that's all in the second book of Samuel, chapter 15, verses 2, 4, and 6. In the New Testament, the Gospels and letters and Revelation all speak of judgment, and there is little doubt that Jesus both assumed and taught the reality of divine judgment, however uncomfortable that notion seems to contemporary readers. Indeed, Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 regard judgment as one of the elementary teachings about Christ. The focus in the Hebrew scriptures is mostly on judgment for the people of Israel in the context of their covenant. But the New Testament's emphasis is more on Jesus as the judge, appointed by the Father, and on judgment for individuals based on their response to Jesus. So, in the Synoptics, judgment arises from what one does, not, we must note, as a means of earning credit with God, but because it reveals one's position regarding Jesus. Those who are faithful to Him do the will of His Father, while those who oppose Him, including the Pharisees, who are criticized at length by Jesus as hypocrites in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, they will face judgment, crisis, which will result in their condemnation. But it is in John's gospel that the crisis, the decision about Jesus, that has to be made by every individual, is set out most explicitly. Jesus says, after the healing of the man born blind, in chapter 9, verse 39 of John's gospel, that he has come into the world for judgment. And remember, that's the gospel of the fourth Sunday of Lent, year A. The Greek phrase is krima is literally with the result of judgment, since the preposition is implies a point reached or entered into, and krima, as with other Greek nouns derived from verbs and ending in ma, is the result of the process of judgment. The process of judgment in John's Gospel is conveyed by the other word krisis, so krisis Or judging is the responsibility both of individuals and of Jesus, and the result of that judging is crema. Although Jesus has been given authority to execute judgment, creesine, by the Father, he judges, crema, with the Father, and according to his Father's will, in John chapter 5 verse 30. And Jesus' aim is not to condemn, but to save the world, in chapter 3 verse 17 and chapter 12 verse 47. And in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus memorably refuses to condemn the woman caught in adultery. And he uses here the intensified variant of the verb, katakrino, that's literally hand judgment down. So Jesus refuses to condemn and does not presume guilt. Instead, the result of the judgment, the krima, depends on our response to Jesus. Four, Jesus is coming provokes that judgment, that crisis, whereby each person must judge either with righteous judgment or else by appearances, and there in John chapter 7 verse 24. And the other not-so-good way of judging is by human standards in John chapter 8 verse 15. One way will result in accepting Jesus, which is expressed in various ways—receiving sight in chapter 9 verse 39, believing in him in chapter 3 verse 18 Loving the truth, in chapter 3, verse 19. Or doing good, in chapter 3, verse 21. And chapter 5, verse 29. The other way, rejecting Jesus, is expressed variously as blindness, chapter 9, verse 39. Not believing, chapter 3, verse 18. Loving darkness, in chapter 3, verse 19. Or doing evil, in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. And chapter 5, verse 29. Rejecting Jesus means the people will be judged... By the word Jesus has spoken in John chapter 12, verse 48. In other words, they'll be judged by their own refusal. Because, as C.S. Lewis said, those who persist in rejecting God may eventually hear Him with tragic irony say to them, Your will be done. On the other hand, accepting Jesus leads to salvation or eternal life in John chapter 5, verse 24 and it avoids condemnation in chapter 3, verse 18. Characteristically, in John's gospel, the same word krisis is used in a double sense, both for the process of condemnation, but also for the activity of human judgment, because in John, they are two sides of the same coin. And such judgment is not just at the end of time. Those who reject Jesus are, in a sense, already condemned in chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 12, verse 31. The trial of Jesus in all four gospels is an ironic paradox. That, as the world pronounces judgment on Jesus, it actually seals its own judgment. So the trial of Jesus turns out to be the trial, the crisis, of the world in which the ruler of this world is driven out. That's in John chapter 12, verse 31. The diagram that you can see in the article on the website shows all the different uses of judgment words in John's Gospel, and it illustrates how Jesus's judgment is based on people's response to him. In other words, Jesus's krisis is based on our own krisis. So take a look at that article on the website and the diagram which summarizes, as I say, those different uses of the words. All of this puts a perspective on another well-known statement of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, do not judge. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. As we have seen, it certainly does not mean to prevent us exercising our judgment in favor of Jesus and against evil. But we must be careful when assessing others that we judge in the right way. Because Jesus goes on to warn us that the standard, the crema we use, will be used to judge us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. So what standard, what krima should we be using? The Bible identifies four different levels or stages of judgment that we should be using and a fifth, which is God's prerogative alone. Let's take a look. So the first stage is understanding, knowing right from wrong. This wisdom comes from God, as Solomon recognized when he asked God for an understanding mind to govern your people, that's diakrinein. That I may discern between good and evil. But who is able to govern this your great people? Govern, there is the verb, krinein. And that is in the first book of Kings, chapter 3, verse 9. Scripture is a good source to acquire such knowledge. In Acts, chapter 17, verse 11, the Jews of Berea received the word with all eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily. The Greek word here is anakrinontes. Examining of the scriptures was to see if these things, that's Paul's preaching, were true. The second stage is discernment applying that understanding of what is right and wrong to see what is right and wrong in a specific situation. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 characterizes those who are mature as being able to distinguish, dia krisin, good from evil. And Jesus encourages the discernment of Simon the Pharisee by saying, you have judged rightly, when Simon responds to Jesus' parable of the debtors in Luke chapter 7 verse 43. In the third stage, application to self, we use the understanding and the discernment that we've gained to resolve to follow the right and reject the wrong. The first letter to the Corinthians chapter 11 verses 29 to 34 is an excellent example of such application to self. The apostle Paul uses different crino words to illustrate the different actions that disciples should take to participate in the Eucharist worthily. So the apostle says that those who eat and drink must be discerning about what they do so that they do not come under judgment again, or participating unworthily. Such discernment will help them to avoid condemnation. It is only in the fourth stage that we can apply judgment to others' behavior. It is valid to do so Because when Lydia asks Paul to judge whether she is faithful to the Lord in Acts chapter 16 verse 15, this is really a request for the apostle to encourage the good. It is also necessary to challenge the wayward. Not to do so would make us guilty of a flabby relativism. But it must always be done in the same way that the Lord corrects, with love, with mercy, and with a care for the individual and their soul to win back your brother, as Jesus memorably puts it in Matthew chapter 18 verse 15, which by the way is a wonderful example of how you should only escalate in gradual stages, giving the other person every single opportunity to turn to the good. In Jude verse 22, he asks disciples to have mercy on those who are wavering. The Greek word here is the negative sense of diakrino, meaning to doubt. When challenges are made to others, they must not be based on our own ideas and opinions, but on the word of God, which the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, describes as kritikos, that's able to discern the thoughts of the heart. The fifth and final level final judgment is God's alone to make. For as James chapter 4 verse 12 says, there is only one who is the lawgiver and judge, the Crites, and the Apostle Paul warns in Acts chapter 17 verse 30 to 31, he, the Lord, has fixed a day on which he will judge, rename, the world in righteousness. And specifically, we must not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, That's in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 5. In other words, we can challenge, but we may not sentence. Our responsibility is to ensure we follow God's word ourselves first, and then leave ultimate judgment to God. As Moses told the people of Israel, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law that's in deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29 so our judgments must always be interim hoping for repentance and reconciliation and applying judgment first to ourselves and then awaiting the lord's definitive judgment with hope so that we can as the first letter of john chapter 4 verse 17 tells us we can have confidence in the day of judgment, the Like Jesus, we should entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. That's in the first letter to Peter, chapter 2, verse 23. For Jesus, remember, did not come to condemn but to save the world, in John, chapter 3, verse 18. So, what does all of this mean for us? Well, first, how sound is our judgment? Do we keep it informed? The catechism paragraph 1783, teaches us to inform our conscience so that we can make good judgments. Without such groundwork, we are building a house upon sand rather than upon rock. We'll see that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Second, does our judgment make us a good example to others? Do we go along with the world, which refuses to make sound judgments, and Do we decline to be an example or to challenge others and therefore implicitly adopt the relativism of secular society? Or can we be instead a sign of contradiction, as Luke chapter 2 verse 34 says, to be like Noah, whose obedience to God challenged his generation, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, and the verb there is katekrinin. If we do challenge others, is it with humility and love, rather than as modern Pharisees, so that the standard, the crema, with which we judge, is the Lord's and not our own. And finally, do we see God as a judge to be feared, or as an advocate? Is our image of God like a stern magistrate or judge, ready to impose sentence on us? Or do we welcome the just judge because we hope in His mercy? Can we, like the psalmist in Psalm 98 verses 8 to 9, rejoice at the presence of the Lord who comes to judge the earth?